Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So we're going to start today by looking at some maps. Yes. <clears throat> why are we starting with maps? Well, I'll tell you why in a minute, but one of the biggest reasons is because um, I've gotten some feedback from my father-in-law on my sermons, and one of the pieces of feedback he gave me was more maps. <laughs> he is pro-maps. I am also pro-maps. The problem is, and you'll see it in a minute, uh, maps are hard to show up on the screen. I mean, we have kind of a jumbotron here, but it, you're gonna see in a minute, it's gonna be difficult. So I busted out my laser pointer, and I hope you can follow along. Are you ready? Buckle up. Let's go to the first one. We need context, context is king, so this is Earth. All right, this is not all of Earth, <clears throat> but this is as far out as I could zoom in my map application at the time. So we got a little blue dot here, this is us, all right? And what we're gonna do, I'm showing you this because some of you, uh, you're, uh, you're not gifted in maps. Geography is not your thing. Like if, if you didn't have that phone on your dashboard telling you, turn right, turn right, you wouldn't know where to go and you'd never leave your home. So this is where we are. We're gonna fly over the ocean and I'm gonna zoom in on this part of the world here. So before we do it, I want you to keep in mind Italy, looks like a boot, all right? Got this little part here, Mediterranean Sea. We're going to zoom in right over here. Let's go to the next one. Oh, we've zoomed in. All right, there's still the boot. So we've got context. We know where we are. The reason why I showed you this, we're going to zoom in uh, in just a second. The reason why I showed you this is because what we're looking at here is pretty much where the entire Bible takes place. Everything you read in here took place pretty much somewhere in this space. So as you're reading... This is where you're going to when you're looking up, okay, reference points for cities. Your mind is set. Look, when we're reading about, like, it's common as an American to kind of assume that like most of the world revolves around the United States. Like most, like all of the Bible and most of history didn't take place where we live. It all took place somewhere else in this geographic region. And even more specifically than this region, it really took place really heavy up in this region. We're going to zoom into this in a minute, but as we zoom in, I want you to kind of keep in mind uh, this little block, okay? This is what is referred to as modern-day Israel. If you look at a map today, this is still the country of Israel, but this is where a lot of the uh, um, uh, New Testament, uh, with the exception of like Acts, when Paul starts traveling around up here to these areas, but a lot of the Old Testament, Exodus, um, the you know first five books of the Bible, they kind of take place on here. Judges, um, Samuel, Kings, they're all kind of in this area. So we're going to zoom in in this area right here. Go ahead and zoom in. All right. Sea of Galilee. So what we're looking at is a zoomed in map of Israel. The land is a pretty similar as it is today. Um, but what you're looking at is kind of, this is the Sea of Galilee. This little river runs all the way down here. It's kind of cut off on this one, but this would be the Dead Sea. It kind of empties out into this big um, body of water and it's all salt and it doesn't go anywhere. So it just kind of sits. That's why it's called the Dead Sea because nothing lives in there. Uh, but you've got the Mediterranean Sea over here. You've got Sea of Galilee. And the reason why I'm showing you this map is because this line demonstrates Jesus's journey 
in Matthew 19 and Matthew 20. Okay, now I've said, I think two weeks ago before Easter, that Jesus was uh, finishing up his ministry in Galilee. When I say Galilee, I'm talking about this region up here around the Sea of Galilee, all right? So there's this main region called the the Galilee. There's this region called Samaria. Um, Jerusalem's down here. Whoa, air conditioning, don't worry about it. That's Jerusalem. This is uh, Galilee. And some of the cities that are familiar, like Capernaum, um, Nazareth, this is where he's from. But this area up here predominantly is where he's been doing most of his ministry in the first chunk of Matthew. Well, we're told that he's starting to leave this area and start heading towards Jerusalem. And I want you to see this map because he's going to head down this way. We're going to learn today that he's going to cross over to the other side of the Jordan, right around here. He's going to do some ministry down here. He's going to cross back over and head up to Jericho, up to Bethany. And eventually he's going to head up to Jerusalem for the triumphal entry. And that's what Palm Sunday was about. Sunday before Easter. He rides into uh, Jerusalem on a donkey, and that's his final week um, on earth. Now, I'm showing you this because this journey, this map, it teaches us a lot about what's about to happen in the life of the disciples. Because in Matthew 19 and 20, Jesus is following this path um, from Galilee down to Jerusalem, and while he's walking on this path, he's teaching his disciples some things. Now, in Matthew 19 and 20, what he's essentially doing during this, uh, this journey is he's re-educating his disciples about the way they think about specific things. Now, I want you to kind of get these two concepts in your mind. We've got this journey and this path. He's heading towards a destination, the triumphal entry. He's heading towards Jerusalem. He's got a purpose, a destination. But just because you have a destination does not mean that the journey on the way to the destination is not important. The journey is as important as the destination because on the way to the destination, Jesus is preparing his disciples so that they can fully accept and live out and enjoy what the final destination is gonna be. Now, why am I saying this? Because in the same way that Jesus is doing that with his disciples here, he's doing that with us. That is what our life equates to. It is a journey with Jesus ultimately terminating at a triumphal entry when Jesus is gonna finally return to earth and he's gonna rule and reign. But until that point at which we arrive to the destination, everything we do, everything we learn, everything we grow in, that is all part of the journey. And in the same way that the disciples needed to be re-educated because their culture had influenced the way they thought so deeply. It influenced things like the way they thought about money, the way they thought about marriage, the way they thought about family and children. And these are gonna come out in in Matthew 19 and, and when we get into 20 next week. In the same way, culture has influenced the way that we see God and the way that we interact. And so what happens often is that you hear something that sounds good, it sounds God, and because it sounds good, you don't don't feel the need to go and check it out and see if it's actually biblical. And then you just kind of put it in your pocket and that just becomes this thing that you kind of pull out and, and you build your theology on this one little thing that you heard somebody say that's not actually true. Satan is the master of this. When he was tempting Jesus uh, in the wilderness, one of Satan's tactics was to actually use scripture and pervert it in a way to mean something that it didn't originally mean. And so one of the things that is common in our lives is for the culture to tell us as Christians what we're supposed to be thinking about things, how we're supposed to process stuff. 
You guys are, are, are uh, you're not open-minded enough about this. This stuff was written a long time ago. Don't you think things have kind of progressed a little bit in these, some of these areas? And you need to kind of change your way of thinking about these things. Well, you either believe that, or you believe that what he said is true, and what needs to change is not him, it's us. And so this journey that we're on, this journey that the disciples are on, is essentially this process of walking with Jesus, going up the mountains, going down the valleys, walking through seasons of deserts in our life, and essentially what we're doing is we're being re-educated, we're being retaught that the way we grew up, the way we thought, what we were born into is not necessarily correct. That God's kingdom works on a completely different economy. That his value system is not ours. What he thinks is important is not what we think is important. And so on this journey, there are some things that are going to have to give inside of your heart. There are some sensitive topics he's going to touch on. He's going to say some things. Look, there's some decisions that you've made previously in your life that were not wise decisions. Now, there is grace for that, and, and, and he loves you, and we're going to move on from there. But to just think that every decision you've ever made, man, I'm here because of the substance of my decisions. I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps, and, and I, am, I am a product of my own success. And other people who just can't get it, that's their fault. Man, that is wrong thinking. You are not where you are because of your own strength and your own gifting. You are here because of the grace of God. You got here not because you decided, I'm going to go to church today. You are here because through God's providence, he has orchestrated things that you, you are in the place right now sitting exactly where you need to be today, hearing exactly what you need to hear because one day you will stand before the Father and you will be held accountable for what you heard. And he will say, you heard my words but you didn't do anything with them. Or you heard my words and they changed you. Enter into glory, my good and faithful servant. Well done. You're gonna hear one of the two things. And my goal, my job is to, in the best way possible, help you hear God's words on this journey so that you can start um, being re-educated and rethinking and, and restructuring. The Bible word for that would be repentance, turning from, turning away, and reassessing this new kingdom that he's telling us about so that this becomes the thing that is the greatest treasure. This is the thing that my whole life is about. My life before I met Jesus was about building my own little thing and, and being successful and having enough trophies and having enough money. But now that I met him, I count all that stuff as lost. It doesn't matter anymore. The, th the stuff that I thought was important, having a family, having a wife, having a great job, having enough money in retirement, none of that matters now that I treasure Jesus. All I want is to be used by him. Now the lie is not that's a bad thing. The lie is that's a good thing as long as you season it with a little bit of yourself. Make sure you set a little side for yourself. It's okay to give yourself to the Lord. It's, just, it's okay to give your affections to him. But just also remember, man, you're human. Just kind of, yeah, give yourself some, man, that's nowhere in the life of Paul. That's nowhere in the life of Jesus. That's nowhere in what Jesus is calling his disciples to do. As a matter of fact, every time the crowd started gathering and started hearing what Jesus was saying and they were getting on, 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 on board with him, he says something completely radical to just turn their lives up to down, upside down and it scatters everybody. Like he was the worst PR guy in the history of the world because every time he starts gathering a crowd, he says something to offend somebody because this walk that we're walking, it's not a, a wide gate. 
It's not a wide path. This is a narrow thing. This, is, this requires a tremendous amount of repentance and humility. Not you getting your way and making sure that you have the best story in the group and having the last word. It is surrender and making your life about nothing else but the supremacy of Jesus. That's what this is about. And if you think that Christianity, Christianity is about anything but that, you have been sold a false Christianity. I'm telling you, this, your life, what we're doing, it is all about Jesus. Okay? Jesus says, you're not going to see the Father unless you see me. The Holy Spirit was given to us so that we could understand and, and have the revelation of Jesus and be led on this path that we're walking. And so for us to understand that this life that we're living that we call Christianity is anything other than Jesus. Us being humbled and serving him and following his plan and making his name known among the nations, it's a lie, okay? So let's get into what he's talking about on this journey. We're gonna start in Matthew 19. I'm gonna start in verse one, it says this. It says, when Jesus had finished saying these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered them, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, well then, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away? And he responded, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So what's happening here is that these, on, on this, this, this road, this journey, Jesus is re-educating his disciples about how they're supposed to think about things. And one of the first things that he re-educates them about is the way that he's supposed to view marriage. And he, ta he talks about marriage quite a bit in the book of Matthew. This isn't the first time that marriage and divorce and all this stuff has come up, uh, but it's uh, visited again because these Pharisees are coming up to him. And what they're doing is they're citing a scripture from Deuteronomy 24, one through four, that essentially says, if there is any indecency that you discover in your wife, you can write her a certificate of divorce and you are officially divorced. This is a command that Moses gave to the people. And you can imagine that moving through the ages, there is kind of a, a right leaning to things and there is a left leaning to things. It's not just in our country. It's always been uh, kind of uh, a, a conservative or a liberal view of things. And at Jesus's time, there were two schools of thought. There was a conservative view, there was a liberal view uh, on what indecency actually meant. Now, uh, one of the schools, the Shammai school, interpreted indecency as adultery. 
actually having an affair while you're still married. The other school, the Hillel school, interpreted indecency as basically anything. If your wife burned the toast, that is indecent. If she refuses to make you toast, that is indecent. So you can see how these two um, polar opposites kind of created tension within the culture when it came to things like marriage and divorce. Because what you had was a culture that did have a high view of marriage, but they also had a high view of divorce. Because what they were looking at was not marriage as a covenant, they were looking at marriage as an arrangement of convenience. And this started way back in the book of Joshua and Judges. This started in in Samuel with kings making these arranged marriages. Lots of countries around the world did this. I'm going to marry, my daughter's going to marry yours so that we can have some peace time. Um, But but once we get to a place where this is not suiting our purposes anymore, then we're going to divorce. Or I'm in a relationship with you and our love has kind of grown cold and so I'm going to go seek um, a way to kind of satisfy my desires outside of this marriage. And it, it may be sexual in nature, it may be just physical in nature, maybe just kind of emotional in nature, but basically I'm not honoring the covenant here. I'm going to go seek fulfillment outside of this marriage. This, this was a predominant thing in the culture. Even though they had a high view of marriage, they also had a high view of divorce. And what's interesting here is that when they're, when Jesus, when, excuse me, when these Pharisees are coming to test Jesus, they're essentially testing his, um, his, his ethics, which side do you fall on? Are you more conservative, are you more liberal? And Jesus refuses to answer any of the questions. He doesn't respond to the issue of Deuteronomy. He actually takes them farther back in the word, back to the garden. So rather than citing Deuteronomy, how about we cite Genesis? Let's cite the very beginning of the book. I'm not just going to not quote scripture. I'm going to quote scripture, but let's go back to the earliest scripture. And what Jesus says is that in Genesis, in the garden, which is older than Deuteronomy, which was written by Moses, there was no divorce in the garden. Marriage was for life because God cements these people together. When a husband leaves his family, he's essentially saying this new family is more important and more valuable right now than my old family. I am leaving this and starting something new. And the same with the wife. The wife cannot join into a new marriage and still be tied to her old family and sit under the covering of her dad when her husband is now responsible for her. So the point is that when this act happens and these two come together, God cements them as one. And if God does the cementing, what in the world does man have to say about ripping apart what God has joined together? That's the reason why in the New Testament, Paul is so strong about entering into the covenant of marriage soberly. This is not something that you do in Vegas after you've had too much to drink. This is something that is a long process that is thought out because what you're saying is for the rest of my life, I'm trading my selfish desires for the desires and the joy of someone else. I no longer want my way I covenant with you that your way is what I want. And if both parties do that, then both parties are fulfilled and there is joy in the marriage. But if one party refuses to do that while the other one is giving, you, this, this tension is created and it, it created the rise of these Pharisees saying, okay, well then what are the parameters for divorce? We should probably make that a, an important thing to talk about, a big deal. And Jesus' response is, 
If you, if your starting point when you're talking about marriage is what are the qualifications for when this thing is eventually gonna be done, then you're starting in the wrong place. If the conversation you're having about marriage in your marriage now or, or, or looking forward to a marriage, if the conversation you're having are, is what are the parameters that we should set right now so that if this thing eventually comes to an end that we can peacefully go our separate ways? And Jesus would say to you that as a Christian, you're starting in the wrong place and you're thinking about the wrong things. Marriage is this thing that started back in the garden that God did that cemented together. And if he did it, what, what grounds do we have to start setting terms um, and boundaries for, for how this thing is going to affect in the future? Essentially, marriage is a covenant that God established that we should treat as holy and we should honor as holy. And rather than trying to find in our culture, which is very popular, Lots of excuses on why this should end or why we should get out of it. We should be not asking ourselves the question, how do I get out of it? But asking ourselves, how do I honor God in it? You follow? Now, this is where we pause because if I were to ask everyone in this room to stand up, if you have gone through a divorce or have been the product of a divorce or have experienced divorce, I, I probably two people would still be seated. Because in our culture, this is something that is very, very prevalent. And it's not just in our culture, it was in Jesus' culture too. I don't need to explain the pain that is um, inherent in divorce. Anybody who has experienced or gone through divorce knows the pain of divorce and knows they would never, ever, ever want to do that again the way that it affects children, the way that it affects your heart, the way that it affects family, that is not something that somebody would choose. Except for those times in our hearts where we are convinced that we're right and we wanna find an excuse to choose our way over his. So in talking about delicate subjects like this, it is important for me to always go back and reference there is absolutely zero condemnation in this place for anybody who has gone through a divorce. There is grace for that, just like there is grace for anything. So do not sit here feeling like there is a big finger being pointed at you because of a divorce that you went through. The issue is, is that sits before us right now is, now that we are believers in this room right now, how do we move forward? What do we do with where we are right now? How do you move forward with where you are right now? Now, some of you, your relationship was birthed out of an affair or adultery. How do you move forward? You humbly come before the Lord and you say, <clears throat> I'm not gonna break up a marriage now because of a mistake that was made in the past. I'm gonna come before the Lord and say, Lord, I repent for being selfish in that season, but I thank you that in that selfishness, you brought something amazing my way, and I'm gonna honor you in the marriage I'm now in. Are you guys following me? So in this context, how do we move forward? What does it look like for us to go forward? I think it's important for us, us to just establish what is it that Jesus is telling us about marriage and cling to those things as highly important for us as reference points for moving forward in our life. So what does he say about marriage? He says, one, if you're making plans to divorce, 
you're in a marriage right now and you're making plans to divorce so that you can be with somebody else, that is adultery. That is sin. You can't do that. You have to repent of that. You got to turn from that. You can't be in a covenant and making plans to get out of a covenant so that you can jump into a new covenant. If you are having a relationship outside of marriage, a marriage that you are in right now, that is adultery, that is sin. You have to repent of that. If your view of sex and marriage is anything beyond God's design, that is sin. If you are a couple that is living together and sleeping together, you are in sin and you have to repent of that. You cannot continue to do that. And if you come to me and say, I want you to officiate my marriage, I'm going to tell you no. And I've told couples that before. I will not officiate your marriage unless you take some act of repentance and choose to live apart and stop sleeping together before you enter into the covenant of marriage. You're only setting yourself up for failure and mistakes. I've seen this a lot in ministry. Trust me, I know what I'm talking about. You don't want to start something like that, a lifelong covenant on shaky ground. You just don't want to do it. If you're... If you feel like intimacy is anything other than what God designed within the context of marriage, a man and a wife coming together in covenant, in the context of marriage, anything outside that is sin. Yes, homosexuality is a sin, but heterosexuality outside of marriage, a man and a wife sleeping together, or a man and a woman sleeping together outside of marriage, that's sin too. Anything, here's what it is. When the world says, well, what about this? Well, what about this? How about, uh, how about a guy who likes to dress like a girl uh, and is attracted to guys? Is it a guy and a girl in the context of marriage? No, then it's sin. All right, how about like, um, how about a woman who's transitioned and now is, uh, has affections for other women? Look, we can sit here all day and run through the long laundry list of the things that the world says are okay, or we can sit here and look at the very clearly defined boundaries for what God says I love and either say yes to it or say no to it. That, I, what we're looking at here is a re-education in our hearts to either say, look, what I think, it may be wrong. I may like the way the world does things more than the way that I like the way the Lord does things. And that is okay if that's where you're sitting right now, but it's not okay for you to stay there. You have to get to a place if you're gonna call yourself a Christian or call yourself a disciple that God's ways trump your ways. You have to get to a place where you say, I don't want the way I think about things anymore. I want the way that he thinks about things. And it comes down to as difficult things about with regards to marriage and sexuality. Excuse me, didn't think I was going to get through that last sentence. So at the end of this, it's important for me to bring it 
what Paul is talking about in, in 1 Corinthians 7. Because Jesus in verse 9 essentially says that with the, except, <coughs> with the exception of unfaithfulness, and the other exception in 1 Corinthians 7, 10, where if two non-believers marry, and later one of them becomes a believer, and they can't live in peace, they could get a divorce. Within, with the exception of those two things, divorce is not something that we as believers do. We don't, we don't do it. So wherever you are right now, this is how we move forward. Now it gets even <clears throat> wilder in verse 10. I, I got it. I'm gonna, do, I'm gonna do this one thing that like, I hate this. I hate listening to people talk with things in their mouth. But I gotta do it. All right, so verse 10. <clears throat> says the disciples said to him, well, holy smokes, if this is the case of a man with his wife, it's just better to not even marry. But he says to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those whom, to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs, oh boy, okay. He's gonna say the word eunuchs like five times in the next verse, so just buggle up. For there are eunuchs who have been, been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. So this education about marriage blew the disciples away. Essentially they're saying, Jesus, if those are the parameters for marriage, it's better if we don't even marry. And Jesus says, well, if, you, if that blew your socks off, let's throw this other one in here. I'm gonna wrap in the context of marriage with children. Now, not everybody's gonna understand this, <clears throat> and this isn't for everybody, but you need to understand this and listen because there are some men who became eunuchs, which essentially means you're unable to have children. <clears throat> some became eunuchs at birth. They were born this way. Some, this happened by force. And this was common uh, in this culture. <clears throat> if you're going to serve ladies in a court setting, you wanna make sure that the slaves are not trying to have relationships with the court women, and so you make arrangements so that they can't do that. So eunuchs by birth, eunuchs by force, but also eunuchs by choice. I don't understand that last one. <clears throat> but his point is that this world that we live in elevates God things like marriage and children to God status. We call that idolatry. And one of the things that you've been educated into is this belief system that you can take good things and worship them because God created them. One of the good things that God created was family, spouse, marriage, children, sex. But the truth is, is that when you elevate those good things to the level of God and idolatry, those good things are now considered sin. And what Jesus is trying to tell us is that there are things in this world that give greater purpose than sexuality and marriage. And this is important for those of you that are single, <clears throat> for those of you that are in a marriage 
because this is the only thing you ever wanted since the time you were a little girl. All you ever wanted was just to have a husband because that gave you a purpose. It gave you an identity. For those of us who are wrapped up in YouTube culture, where these influencers are telling us that your identity is wrapped up in your sexuality. The truth is that the idea that your identity has to be tied to your sexuality is a lie. There are greater roots of identity than just your sexuality. That is an unbelievably shallow sense of identity. Now, let's go on to verse 13. At this point, after Jesus just finishes saying eunuch five times, he just finishes talking about the importance of understanding that sexuality, children, all that stuff, family, it's not the greatest thing in the world. It is a good thing, but it is not the greatest thing in the world. Look what happens. Then children were brought to him that he may lay hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said to them, let the little children come to me and do not, be, do not hinder them <clears throat> for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. So right after Jesus finishes talking about eunuchs, a bunch of people thought it was a good idea to bring their kids forward. Now picture this, Jesus is standing there and I just imagine he's trying to communicate, look, he's like, look, there are some things in this world that are greater than what you think are amazing in this world. And the greatest thing that you could do for God's kingdom is not just have children. There are some people who make a decision to not have any children. Like, man, Paul, John the Baptist, they didn't even get married and look at the impact they had. Children are wonderful, but they're not the greatest thing in the world. There are things that can give you an identity greater than that. And then some parents, oh, but Jesus, look at my precious little angel. I say props to the disciples for rebuking these people. Because it shows how tone deaf this crowd was. Jesus is talking about not having children. What do these people do? flex on everybody else because they have children. I've got nine. Look at my 11. Look at this little, look at how good he is, Jesus. And the disciples are just like, are you kidding me? <clears throat> and they try to rebuke the people, but Jesus, he doesn't fault the kids for their parents. And the church says, amen. Because what Jesus does is he invites the kids to come close to receive prayer, be touched by God. And this moment is a re-education for the disciples. This kingdom is for the children too. Kids are not too little to understand. And just because a child grows up in a broken home that doesn't know Jesus doesn't mean the child is lost. Now for me, <clears throat> this gives me a context for why I have no problem baptizing children. Next week at our um, picnic, we're gonna have a baptism and some of the baptisms are gonna be little kids. Now, I'm not baptizing infants, 
But if a child can explain to me in their own words what Jesus has done for them, if they can accurately describe a conversion experience to me, and I can see it in their eyes that Jesus called them close by their name. Who am I to tell them, no, you need to wait? You've got disciples baptizing, baptizing entire families in the book of Acts when the parents get saved. And so far, I know that's kind of a contention within churches sometimes, at what age do you baptize? I don't think it's an age, I think it's a maturity. And sometimes there are some kids and they're just ready. And so I would use a scripture like this to kind of give a foundation for why I don't have an issue with that. But that's just kind of a side thing. Let's get back into verse 16. At this point, behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. And if you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, well, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother and love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said, all of these I've kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said, if you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So the Pharisee came, the, the Pharisees at the beginning of chapter 9 came to Jesus, starting in the wrong place about marriage. And this guy, this rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus starting in the wrong place too. He wants to know what deeds must I do in order to inherit eternal life. Jesus walks him through this commandment, but he knows that there's a lack and what he's doing is he's building a case. He's essentially saying, look, you got to do all these things, right? That's what you've been taught. But doing the things aren't what qualify you for eternal life. Doing these things are what reveal inside of you a deficit that you could never achieve eternal life. So what Jesus is saying is, hey, have you done these things? Have you done these things? Because if you have, you would surely have come to the conclusion that you need someone to save you because you have a huge deficit. And this guy responds, no, no, I've done all those things and I haven't found any deficit. So what am I lacking? And at this point, Jesus makes a request on this guy's life that reveals something deeper in his heart. And the revelation was essentially that this guy treasured his treasure more than he treasured God. Now, he loves his treasure more than he loves God And there's only one way to deal with the the condition that your treasure is in your treasure and not God, and that is to forsake your treasure. I bring that up because the question now would be, well, is that for everybody? Is it a requirement on every disciple who follows Jesus to sell everything they have and give it to the poor? Only if your treasure is your treasure. The issue here is not being wealthy or rich or having abundance. In fact, the word rich here means having abundance. 
And what he's saying here is that there is a, there is a, a posture that we can take when we have abundance, where our abundance dictates our value system. God increases things in our life and we lie to ourselves and tell ourselves those things are for us. And we think that we are an owner rather than someone who is um, operating God's economy on behalf of him. We're a steward, but we think we're an owner. And so when this guy comes to Jesus, what Jesus is telling him is that he has to forsake his treasure. He's got to let it go. And this posture completely rocks the disciples just like the last one. This re-education blows them out of the water. Because in their culture, they're convinced that wealth equals God's approval. You're wealthy because God loves you. And he's just showering his wealth on you. That's why you're wealthy. So if the wealthy people have to forsake their wealth in order to seek God, then who can be saved? And that's what he says in verse 23. Let's go to that. Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and said, well, who can be saved? Because I've been spending my entire life thinking that what my goal needs to be is to increase my wealth. Because that is a sign that God loves me. And he's showering his favor on me. None of this makes sense. But Jesus looked at them and says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And then Peter said in reply, <clears throat> see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So if the rich can't be saved, who can be saved? This word rich being rooted in abundance, the idea of that abundance is essentially not just wealth or riches, but in excess of anything in your life. Abundance doesn't have to just be um, finances. Abundance can be um, your abundance or your, your desire to want to chase power or fame or addiction or people's approval or the desire to be in the know. Any one of us sitting in here is rich in the world's abundance, finances, or the desire to want to be known, to have fame. What is the only thing we can do if we want to inherit eternal life? We have to turn away from that stuff. The only way to reconcile a heart that treasures this world's treasure more than they treasure God is to forsake this world's treasure. So for those of you that are in here this morning and there are a hundred things in your life that you love more than Jesus, I got bad news for you. The only way to love Jesus more 
is to let go of those things. Now, I said before, does this mean that you have to abandon everything in order for you to please God? No, abundance and wealth um, it can, it can make you make bad choices. Abundance and wealth can increase your chances to wander. Abundance and wealth um, can put you in this position where you're treasuring things that are not God. But abundance can also be a tool in the hand of God. So for those of us who treasure riches more than we treasure God, you're gonna have to let that stuff go. But that does not mean that you can't have abundance and wealth and also love Jesus. There's a difference between worshiping your wealth and worshiping God with your wealth. The goal as a Christian is not to become wealthy. The goal of a Christian is to find whatever state you are in that God has placed you and to use whatever resources he has put in your hands to glorify him and not yourself. That's the goal. So some of us, God has blessed your business abundantly. And that abundance is not for your comfort. That abundance is for kingdom building. For those of you who can't be trusted with abundance because you're still learning some things like discipline, your goal is not to say, God, my life would be better if I just had more stuff, if I just had more money, if I could just make more. Your, what you need to do in your life right now is learn how to let go of the stuff that you think gives you a sense of identity and live peacefully exactly where God has called you in just enough. You follow? These are completely radical ideas. These are the kind of things that are blowing the disciples' minds and they blow our minds too because we're sitting here wrestling going, well, I, don't, I don't know what I think about this. Because this means that if I forsake some things now, yes, I'll inherit later, but it means I have to wait and I don't like waiting. Well, that's why your credit score is so bad. Because you don't like waiting. Because you have been bought, born into a culture that tells you, no, no, you don't have to wait for anything. You can have all that you want now and pay for it later. That's not how the kingdom of God works. The kingdom of God works off of the economy of you saying no now rejecting now, turning from now, not storing up treasures now so that you will inherit later. It is a pushing off of the things your flesh wants so that you can inherit those things in the right way in your resurrected body later. So for us sitting here saying, well, I don't know if I could do this. This seems impossible. God's Promise the disciples the same for us. With God, it is impossible. Or with man, it is impossible. With God, all things are possible. And what he's saying there is that, look, it seems impossible in the minds of man for you to just forsake everything and to live simply and to live open-handed so that God's, uh, his gifts and his, his, his treasure flows through your hands and you're not holding on to it so you can build a good life for yourself or for your kids or for your grandkids. That seems contrary to everything that this world is teaching. And I don't know how to do that. He says, well, with man, it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Because what your promise is that if you do let, if you live that way right now, if you live open-handed and let God's treasures flow through your hands so you're not building your own kingdom, then that kingdom that you want so desperately, the inheritance, that stuff that you do want here, you're gonna get it later. 
you're going to inherit eternal life, which is funny. It's the one thing that the rich young ruler didn't have. Did you catch that? He's got everything. He's got plenty of wealth. And according to his own standards, he's followed all of the laws. He's checking all of the boxes. He's got everything in life, but there's one thing he doesn't have, and that's eternal life. And Jesus says, if you want to get the one thing that the guy who has everything doesn't have, then you've got to get rid of and forsake all of the stuff of the world. That's the only way to inherit the one thing that the guy who's rich doesn't have. So this entire chapter, we've been walking through this process of re-education down this journey. Constantly, Jesus is challenging these guys' idea of, of marriage and divorce and children and wealth, sex, money. But there's one more area that we're just going to touch on briefly and get into next week, and that's in verse 30. We'll read this last verse, and this is where we'll stop today. He says, many of you who are first, you're going to be last. And many of you who are last, you're going to be first. Now, this is the final re-education for today. And I'm, a, I'm, I'm just touching on this because chapter 20 starts with this next week, but I want to leave you with this thought. If, we're, if we, as disciples, are in a posture of trying to re-educate ourselves and tell our minds, no, we need to be washed with the word, we need to be thinking differently about things, we need to be transformed, then one of the things we need to be transformed about is this idea that I want to be first and best and greatest. I don't even have to be seen, or I don't even have to be first or best or greatest. I just have to be seen as first and best and greatest in the eyes of my peers. And that's the trap. Because when Jesus says many of you who are first will be last, what he's saying is that for most of the history of the world, in order to be first, you actually had to be first. But because in this culture, we're, we're passing out participation trophies on everything, you don't actually have to be first. You can get a social media account and you can feel first, best, greatest just by spending most of your life trying to do things that you know will give likes and comments and feedback. You don't actually have to make the most amount of money, you just have to look like you make the most amount of money. You don't have to be the greatest preacher, you just gotta take other guys' sermons and twist them around in a way that gets everybody hyped up and make it seem like you're the best preacher. You see where I'm going with this? This is the trap we live in today. There was a time in history where if you wanted to be first, you had to be first, you had to beat everybody else, but it's not like that anymore. It's even worse now, because if you wanna be first, all you have to do is look like you're first. But Jesus says those who are first are gonna be last. If you spend the majority of your time trying to convince other people of your worth and your value, you're gonna find yourself in the line of God's kingdom and his value at the very back. But those who spend most of their time on their knees serving others and not trying to prove their worth because they already know their worth in the eyes of their father, those are the ones who are first. And on that thought, let's hit pause and pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.